Hello and welcome to the Education Policy Podcast from Voice Community. In this episode, here and now, we look at the recently published Teacher Wellbeing Charter and the lifting of restrictions in schools and education settings in England. We look at the Green Book and job evaluation in Your Working Life and we bust those marking myths. Welcome once again to the Education Policy Podcast for England. Before we get going, just a couple of other notes. First of all, we are now on Apple Podcasts, so please go there to subscribe, like and share to make sure the podcast always arrives on your smart device whenever it is released. And a couple of other things coming up. On Thursday the 27th of May at 4pm, we are holding our Difficult Conversations workshop. That's linked to our work with the Stephen Lawrence Day Foundation. It's about having those difficult conversations in the workplace or in the classroom, particularly in this instance around race. And talking of Stephen Lawrence Day, if you missed any of the resources we put out, they are available at stephenlawrenceday.org slash resources. So first up, a well-being charter. This is something I've been really looking forward to uh, finding out more about since I first sort of heard of its existence. Martin, what can you tell us just at the moment about where it's at, what it is, who's created it, all those sorts of things? So, putting on my best government voice... Oh, this one again. The Wellbeing Charter was created by the education sector to highlight staff well-being in the education sector. It is a tool for schools and colleges to create and publicly commit to their own well-being strategies. It's a declaration to protect, promote and enhance the well-being and mental health of everyone working in state education. It includes 12 commitments on education staff well-being by DfE and Ofsted. It sets out five principles of shared understanding on the meaning and importance and well-being and of everyone's roles and responsibilities. It sends a message to everyone working in schools and colleges that their well-being and mental health matters and it aims to improve well-being in schools and colleges by encouraging debate and accountability. But it doesn't actually tell you how it's going to do that. Okay, um, so it's all well and good, all that, I suppose. Uh, at the moment, when is this likely to be published? Has it been published? This is currently um, available to download on the on the Department for Education website, but it's fair to say that it's been a bit of a, a soft launch. The formal launch is due later on this year in the autumn. In time for the, the new year, uh, the new school year. It just says in the autumn. So schools can use this charter to show staff that they're taking their well-being seriously? Yeah, schools, and it is about schools primarily, will be invited to sign up to this well-being charter and it shows their staff that they're taking well-being seriously. It's a way of opening a conversation about well-being and mental health um, and, and hopefully this is the start of something to address some of the issues that we know exist in schools around well-being, around mental health. It's really important, isn't it? I, I've worked in some schools who have a well-being staff group already um, and some of the things that happen in those schools are fantastic. Some of the things that are put on, the people invited to come and talk, but it's not happening everywhere and we know that it's one of the most significant reasons for teachers leaving the profession. That's absolutely right. We know that mental well-being is a problem in schools and although this charter doesn't really go far enough to address those problems, what it does do is recognise that there's a problem. Yeah, 
There has been some criticism of this, hasn't there? One of Ofsted's three commitments was to review whether the framework is having inadvertent impacts on staff well-being. So, for example, is it creating unnecessary workload and take steps to alleviate any of those issues? Anybody who is working in a school will tell you that Ofsted does generate unnecessary workload, even if that's inadvertently. Even if Ofsted themselves are not demanding that, it's going to create um, additional paperwork because that is the nature of what schools do to prepare themselves for inspection. But this was a pledge rather than... Uh, you know, something that says there must be a dedicated review of how inspections impact staff, though. That's right. So this is a pledge. It's not actually got any teeth. It's not holding anybody to account. It's not even driving any change, but it is raising well-being and that's that's the first step to addressing the problem. So Ofsted have promised to continue to clarify, in their words... Uh, that providers are not expected to create documentation for inspectors. Yeah, that's right. This is something that's been included in their myth-busting document for a number of years now, and it is something which is really important to remind members about. When you are preparing for an inspection, you will be told an awful lot of things. Some of these things will be true, and Ofsted will require those things of you, many of these things are simply not true. And so it's very, very important to read this document and to read the Ofsted handbook to be sure about exactly what Ofsted is requiring you to provide. According to Schools Week, um, Ofsted's pledge to review whether inspections are affecting staff wellbeing has been branded disingenuous after it emerged that no new action is actually being taken here. Yeah, we broadly welcome any action that seeks to support staff well-being within education because we know that stress and a lack of care for staff well-being is one of the biggest drivers of staff leaving the profession and so we're really pleased that the department has recognised this however this charter is just a charter it's a document of intent who is going to hold schools to account who are the schools going to hold to account uh, when they're under pressure from DfE and Ofsted, and who is going to hold DfE and Ofsted to account. So unless there is some authority, some teeth behind it, this document risks not achieving its promised and stated aims. And that's our biggest fear. As I said, this is not a solution, but it is a start of the process in recognising that there's a problem. So generally speaking, I guess we're, we're accepting it's a positive step forward, but we're just going to kind of have to wait and see how it pans out into schools more generally. I think it's one of those things where we wait until this is launched and uh, then review and see what impact it has actually been able to have. So probably the biggest news of the last few weeks is that we are continuing down the road out of lockdown restrictions. That's a good thing, isn't it, generally, to be in a position where we can, as a society, begin to consider those real sort of final steps out of this lockdown. That's a good thing. But, Martin. But. Our recent survey highlighted that wearing a face covering makes many members feel safer in the classroom. So we had advised the DfE that we would like face coverings to remain in use until the evidence indicates that they're no longer needed and in line with other indoor activities such as shopping. We're still waiting for that evidence, but the official guidance now reads that from the 17th of May, in line with step three of the roadmap, face coverings will no longer be recommended for pupils and students in classrooms or communal areas in schools and FE providers. 
Face coverings will also no longer be recommended for staff in classrooms, but they should be continued to be worn in corridors, staff rooms and other areas with inadequate ventilation. In all schools and FE providers, the DfE continue to recommend that face coverings should be worn by staff and visitors in situations outside of classrooms where social distancing is not possible. Can I pick up on the word recommended there? So face coverings will no longer be recommended for pupils and students in classrooms and communal areas. That doesn't mean schools can't still ask for them to wear it. Where do schools sort of stand now with decisions they get to make? So we know that there have been a number of recent incidents involving COVID that have been reported by education settings in the last few weeks. Indeed, a school in Derbyshire, very close to us, uh, was forced to close the other week after around 160 students and staff tested positive for the virus. And this has prompted neighbouring schools to keep their mask recommendation in place. But it's important to say that this can be done in association with local public health directors. The schools can't just generally make that decision and require all of their students to continue wear face coverings. We know that some local schools have also made wearing face coverings optional rather than just going from everybody must wear them a couple of weeks ago to the position now where nobody needs to wear them. And I think that's probably a very sensible decision. Let's step it down and allow people who continue to want to wear face coverings to be able to do so. So if I were a teacher in a school and at home I have some critically vulnerable people who I care for, extremely vulnerable people who I care for, can I ask my head teacher if I can continue to wear masks? Voice Community's position is that staff should be permitted to wear face coverings should they wish to do so, provided that they do not disadvantage any of their learners. And we advise members to speak with their senior colleagues, with head teachers, should they wish to continue wearing them. The wearing of face coverings continues to be mandatory on public transport, school buses, and as I've already mentioned, in shops, and it's mandatory for adults in enclosed spaces. So we don't think that this is an unreasonable request. The difference, for example, between going to a pub and sitting inside, which we can do from yesterday, the 17th of May, and having to go to school is that You choose to go to the pub. You know what you're going to expect when you get there. You're choosing to go and sit with loads of people, potentially, who are also there. The difference for a teacher going to a school is they've got to go to work and there will be people there, up to 30 people in a room. Our message, I suppose, to our members is if that's you and you feel vulnerable, ask. Definitely. Um, A a teacher tap survey recently found that a third of teachers wanted staff and students to continue to wear masks. Uh, 27% wanted them in the classroom, but more than a third of teachers surveyed said they would prefer their school did not require face coverings. So there are um, very, very divergent views on this, but you're absolutely right. Staff who work in schools have no alternative but to go to work. And so we want our members to be as safe as possible. If our members are feeling at any way vulnerable, then they must ask their uh, head teacher, their senior leader, and say, I would like to continue wearing a mask. It will help to make me feel safer. And we just we hope that where you're not disadvantaging learners, senior members of staff will allow that to continue. As long as it's a reasonable request, we would not expect that to be refused. Moving on then to school trips and visits. 
Schools were able to resume educational day visits from the 12th of April, so some time ago now, as long as the visit was arranged in line with COVID-secure guidelines and regulations, such as keeping children within their consistent groups, thorough risk assessments, consult the health and safety guidance, all those things you'd expect. The restrictions do mean, though, that settings probably can't use volunteers and parent helpers, which may affect the ability to take groups due to group safety and ratios. But as long as those things can be fulfilled, day visits have been going on since the 12th of April or have been able to. Domestic residential educational visits, so staying overnight, that can now happen as well, can't it? Yes, so schools can now undertake domestic residential education visits. But taking a group on a residential visit is even more fraught than it might normally be because guidance states that children still need to be kept within their consistent groups, within their bubbles, for the purposes of the visits. And it's difficult to safely separate large groups from Mm. other residents in hostels and hotels, for example. Or indeed, it might be impossible... Um, to even close off a corridor for the exclusive use of of a group. So this is going to be something which is very difficult to actually accommodate. In addition to that, risk assessments need to be done for the residential uh, settings and for the places where the children are going to visit. And all other systems of controls for those visits also need to be followed. Again, this means that many places will struggle to take trips because they'll be restricted by an inability to involve volunteers or parental helpers and all of the impacts that that will have on ratios and safety. So the government has now published red, amber and green list rules for entering England. How does that affect schools? So it's really complicated at the moment. International travel is still not recommended even at this stage of the pandemic and we recommend that schools do not go on any international visits this academic year. In fact, we're pushing for the government to make this position legally clear because we're aware that schools, parents and staff may have to bear the brunt of any cost if a trip is legally allowed to go ahead although it may not be recommended. So we're pushing the government to make this position clear, particularly around insurance, so that nobody should lose out. So we're going to move on to something I think we've mentioned before. We're going to talk about the Green Book. Now, this isn't to be confused with the Burgundy Books, different colour, that we've mentioned in past episodes. This is the Green Book. And The Green Book is a national agreement between local government employers, such as local authorities and schools, and unions. And it establishes national terms and conditions such as rates of pay and that sort of thing. It covers teaching assistants and higher level teaching assistants, office and clerical support staff, specialist support staff such as those working with SEND children, cleaners, site and ground staff, catering teams, to name just a few. Now, this might turn, Martin, into a bit of a question and answer session, I think, oh, great. to some extent here, um, because I want to make sure that it's understandable for everybody. So my first question for you is, I suppose, what does it mean, this Green Book? Well, you've already said that the Green Book is a national agreement. This establishes the terms and conditions of employment for those people who work in local authority employment. Um, So for our members, as you said, TAs and HLTAs, ground staff, cleaners, etc. And it establishes their rates of pay, it establishes their entitlement to holiday, it explains their sick pay and all those employment terms and conditions. Are there any exceptions? I mean, for starters, 
not all schools or local authority run anymore. So are there exceptions to the Green Book and who it doesn't apply to? Yes, there are exceptions. The Green Book doesn't automatically apply to anyone who works in an academy or a free school or an independent school. Those people who have tupid, who've transferred their employment over into an academy or a free school may still be covered under Green Book terms, but they may have terms and conditions that are established by their employer. Similarly, people working in a number of local authorities have not been covered by Green Book terms for a number of years because local authorities such as Buckinghamshire, Bromley, Hampshire, Huntingdonshire, Kent, Medway, Northamptonshire, Oxfordshire and Surrey have all opted out of the NJC arrangement. What's the NJC? So the NJC is the National Joint Council for Local Government Services and that is the organisation that negotiates on behalf of the local government. So some academies do adhere to the Green Book? Some academies do adhere to the Green Book and some academies adhere to the Green Book because their employees are still under Green Book terms because they have transferred. So the NJC, which we've established is the National Joint Council, covers over one and a half million local government and school workers. So it is a really important negotiating body. Absolutely. The NJC pay claim was submitted on Monday the 15th of February this year. What can you tell us about that? The unions and the NJC uh, submit a pay claim every couple of years or so. And this year, the claim is calling for a 10% pay rise for local government workers. And the full claim document can be found in the resources section on our website, www.community-tu.org. On the 21st of August last year, the NJC committee agreed to accept the pay offer for the year 2021, which included a 2.75% pay increase, a one-day increase in the Green Book minimum level of annual leave, and some joint work on mental health. The committee said that the offer fell far short of the claim and did not properly reward key workers for their exceptional contributions throughout the COVID-19 pandemic. However, they agreed that it was the best achievable through negotiation. So the other thing people may have heard of in relation to the Green Book is about job evaluation and about single status. What's that? Job evaluation is a process where the um, relative worth of different jobs within an organisation is assessed based on things such as skills, qualifications, experience and training. And it tries to make sure that equal jobs are valued equally for things like pay. Okay, so that's job evaluation. What about single status then? In 1997, a single status agreement was made between the local government and Greenbook unions to streamline all pay scales into one. And this was done to try and prevent inequalities in pay. Single status refers to this one pay scale. And to get all workers onto the same pay scale, councils had to evaluate every job type. So this is why single status and job evaluation are linked. There are a number of job evaluation schemes that local authorities and multi-academy trusts and other employers have used. And nobody is bound to use any one scheme. And although many of our members have now been through the job evaluation process with little impact, we do know that some have suffered quite badly, uh, especially those who were previously employed on full-time year-round contracts and who have subsequently been evaluated onto term time only. 
because they have seen a reduction in their salary. One of the things we often hear from our members is that they've been told by their employer that because Voice Community aren't one of the recognised Green Book trade unions, that we can't support them. And that's not the case, is it? No, we can and do support members. We're just not recognised for the purposes of these national pay negotiations. We can and do help individuals and groups of employees with any and all employment issues that they might have. And of course, more and more, this doesn't apply to those working in academies and free schools, and we can continue to help those members too. So it's really important not to conflate the two issues of recognition for negotiating on the Green Book and support in your individual workplace. We can support you in your individual workplace. Absolutely. And of course, as a member, if you feel that there's a problem, please do get in touch. If you feel that there's a problem with your job description or with any of the job evaluation process, please get in touch. We have fully trained job evaluators working within community that can assist you in getting the correct pay and grading for the job you do. So the bottom line is get in touch. We can help. Right. And finally, every teacher's favourite subject love to hate it I think in teaching marking so let's try and bust some of those Ofsted myths around marking so I'm going to give you Martin a couple of myths and um, you can bust those myths for us uh, and tell us what actually is the case okay you all right with that yeah let's go okay so myth number one Ofsted expect to see regular and extensive marking in pupils books Okay, the Ofsted handbook makes it absolutely clear. Ofsted do not expect to see a particular frequency or quantity of work in children's books. And in fact, um, Sean Harford, the HMI um, for education within Ofsted, has said that marking has proved to be one of the hardest myths to bust. So Ofsted are looking for marking that is in line with your school's assessment policy. So the highlight there is, is first of all, untrue. They do not expect to see regular incentive marking in people's books. They expect to see it in line with the school's assessment policy. So it's up to your school what that assessment policy is. It doesn't have to mean extensive marking. All right, myth number two. Detailed and in-depth marking is required by teachers. This is one that's going to take a little bit more unpacking. And moving away from this is often a culture change for many schools and teachers who are used to using techniques like didactic, deep or triple marking to help produce evidence to Ofsted of the quality of feedback they provide to pupils. It's important to remember that what we've already said, Ofsted do not expect to see a particular frequency or quantity of work in children's books. And there is remarkably little high quality evidence to suggest that detailed or extensive marking has any impact on pupils' learning. And the chair of the marking review group in the publication back in 2016 states this very clearly. Marking practice that does not have the desired impact on pupil outcomes is a huge time-wasting burden and it has to stop. Right, so no government or Ofsted guidance or policy has set deep marking as a requirement. We've established that, so what's the problem? The teacher standards state clearly that teachers should give pupils regular feedback, both orally and through accurate marking, and to encourage pupils to respond to the feedback. And this is perhaps where this um, has arisen from. It's that encouraging pupils to respond to the feedback. 
However, in the 2016 report of the Independent Teacher Workload Review Group, they confirmed that marking should be part of an assessment policy alongside other practices that inform teachers, create positive pupil outcomes and drive future planning. So it's within an assessment policy that pupils should be encouraged to respond. And in fact, the teacher standards themselves use the word feedback, and that's really important as well. There's no one-size-fits-all solution to this. It's going to be a different approach for different ages, different phases, maybe even different subjects. What we need to do is to make sure that our practices have an impact on pupils' outcomes. Otherwise, they are just wasting time. Is one of the problems that schools think they have to evidence this feedback, right? Because I'm going back to my days in the classroom and without a shadow of a doubt for me the best form of feedback is the oral feedback you give to students is the conversations you're having as you move around the classroom or the class de- class debates that happen um, on a certain subject unless you're filming that it's impossible to evidence that feedback that's given is that part of the problem part of the problem exactly um, and part of the problem is that schools often have a marking policy One of the things that we encourage schools to have is an assessment and feedback policy because that that feedback that you've just mentioned, that oral feedback that is given to students, is validated. It's validated in a policy and therefore Ofsted can expect you to use oral feedback to improve pupil outcomes. Ofsted would expect to see an improvement in the pupil's work because you're giving that oral feedback. Okay, Three principles of feedback and assessment then. Meaningful, manageable, motivating. Do you want to touch on any of those three in greater detail? So meaningful, manageable, motivating. These are the three principles of feedback and assessment that were uh, published as the outcome of the marking review group. And the full report can be found on the DfE website. What works is going to vary by age group, subject, pupil and teacher in relation to any particular piece of work. So your school policy needs to be able to adjust your approach as necessary. It needs to trust you as a teacher to incorporate the outcomes into your planning and teaching and to drive pupil learning. But any policy also needs to be manageable. Assessment practice needs to be proportionate. It needs to consider the frequency and the complexity of written feedback. So, for example, those two who are teaching English may have much more written work to feedback on than those who are teaching more practical subjects, like PE, for example. You also have to understand that the time taken to engage in written feedback is often not very time effective. And so this also needs to be written into any assessment policy to recognise that marking and assessment needs to be cost and time effective for the staff. And thirdly, all feedback should be motivating. The purpose of assessment and feedback is to help pupils to progress. And so sometimes short, challenging comments, oral feedback, they're much more effective than extensive written commentary, especially since they can be delivered at a time before the errors are compounded. So here's the highlight. And I'm pausing for dramatic effect. Feedback can take the form of spoken or written marking, peer marking and self-assessment. If the hours spent do not have the commensurate impact on pupil progress, stop it. And that's the bottom line. Please stop it. And there we are. We've busted another myth. We've busted the marking myth. Boom. Right. So that's the end of another 
policy podcast episode. Um, next month, we have Letitia, our early years specialist, joining us to talk about changes to the early years foundation stage framework. If you've got any feedback for us or if there are any topics that you would like us to cover, then please do get in touch. You can email us on policy at community-tu.org. And finally, a reminder of those things I mentioned at the start of the episode, we have a difficult conversations workshop taking place on Thursday the 27th of May at 4pm. I think last time I checked there was about eight places left, so get in there quickly if you want to join in on that. It's about having difficult conversations, particularly in this instance, around racism in the classroom or just generally in the workplace, so please do sign up. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter for regular updates. And we'll see you again next time on The Policy Podcast. Mm -hmm.